Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast, a podcast series that aims to inspire you and others by bringing in the best people of the business. Now again, please go to the website of masteringagility.org, subscribe to our newsletter, stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast, as well as claiming that OptiLearn discount code for all their Scrum.org related courses. I would also love to hear from you what you like about this podcast, what you dislike, what we can do better, what kind of guests you would like to hear. I would just love to hear from you. And you can do that by leaving us a review on Podchaser. The link is included in the show notes. Now, Going back to bringing in the best people of the business, today we have someone that has been fundamental for the ways that have, we have been working with uh, in this agile world. Ari van Bennekem, one of the founding people of the Agile Manifesto, is joining us today to talk about the current state of that Agile Manifesto. It has been designed and put together in 2001 with some ideas in mind. And I'm curious how he feels that we are currently doing compared to the idea when they founded it, when they wrote it together in that cabin. Let's welcome Ari. Ari van Bennekem, it's an honor to have you here today. Really appreciate you making the time for us. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you very much. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on in the agile world. So I have even in the in, in the COVID times, I'm very very busy, and I'm also I'm happy that I see sort of sort of things um, improving in terms of travel. Because honestly speaking, when it comes to my life pre-COVID and at the moment. I miss my travel. I travel a bit at the moment. You know, I've been to, let's say, since the summertime, since the summer holidays, I've been to to places like Germany and France and Belgium, Armenia. Uh, uh, but my life pre-COVID was a little bit wider. <laughs> that was from China to Argentina, from South Africa to Sweden. So I miss it a bit. And, and also you have to realize that you build friends. So I have people that I didn't see for two and a half years now. Eh? Yeah, that's yeah. tough. What yeah. do you what do you think from your experience is the biggest lesson that we that, that you personally had when it comes to COVID and pre-COVID? Well, the lesson that I got out of it, so I have to be honest, I have a, a little bit of history in the healthcare, um, and I always thought that something like this would happen, but I thought always it would be a bacteria that would be resistant to antibiotics or something like this, and I never got to the virus. I remember because COVID is a SARS virus and we had a, the SARS virus already going on in 2002 um, that we had issues there. So something was about to happen. That was not really my learning. But what you what you can see is that um, the, the way we engage, you know, like you and I are doing right now, the remote thing, right, is, um, is, is, is something that has, of course, now shown and proved itself. I was already working like this. Because I do international transformations with organizations that have people in multiple countries. So you have a lot of this kind of work. It's not exactly, we're not all working from home in that kind of situation, but it's people from different business locations. But you know that the video conferencing as as a connection tool, a collaboration tool works. Um, But what it taught me, maybe I should say what it made me aware of is uh, I should travel less because of my carbon footprint. Yeah. I I am afraid I have a carbon footprint that you won't like. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty and, sure. Yeah, and I'm at least I can say I don't like it myself. I got sucked into this world and I sort of took it for granted. And COVID 
made me sit back and I will travel because I have my friends and I think I can travel and I should travel, but not the way I did it. I, the, 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 one of the most idiot travels I had was uh, two, two examples from here to uh, Lebanon, from Lebanon to Ghana, from Ghana to Amsterdam, wait for a couple of hours, jump on a plane to Romania. <laughs> a crazy days. schedule. Yeah, and um, another one is uh, uh, that was literally pre-COVID. I think it was November. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, going from here to China, from China to Amsterdam, back, wait at the airport, catch a midnight flight to Moscow, arrive at 4.30 in the morning, take a couple of hours and do a three-hour talk for a group of 75 managers, <laughs> get oh, wow. back on the plane and go home. I mean... Uh, and I was talking to a, a, a business connection and he said, Ari, I had clients that expected me to fly in for a meeting of an hour to New York. And that's, I think that's the thing that we all learned. I think people like me should now have learned to stand up against this. No, this is what we don't do anymore. Um, and also, I think there's a lot of more awareness. And I think when it comes to, to the learnings for the rest of the world, being aware that a lot of things can be done remote, it's not 100% alternative for for being on site right but we can do a lot a lot more remote than we we ever thought yeah but it's it's a good in, introspective discussion you want to have because this yeah. impacts you and your your personal motivation i mean this relates back to daniel pink's uh drive as well your your purpose and your feeling of autonomy and those kind of things not being able to travel takes away and chips away a bit on that as well so really having a good hard look into yourself what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve yeah. it yeah. Uh, it's it's tough. Uh, speaking of learnings, you were part of you're you're one of the founders of the Agile Manifesto. You were there when it, when you guys put it together. What I'm curious about, and we'll zoom in, in uh, into that in this discussion, is how it was put together, what your experience is, what your view is, and how we're doing currently, looking back. So, what the current state is of the Agile Manifesto. First, take us back to the moment that you guys came together and figured this is what we see is a commonality. Yeah, so you have to imagine that uh, writing the manifesto is just a moment in time. Um, there's a whole time window before and after that where the authors of the Edge of Manifesto, every one of them, worked differently because we worked differently from the waterfall. I remember that people said to me, why are you always... You know, so harsh on the waterfall because you can also do combination. Now, piss off. I, the, the waterfall is having embedded standard problems that you can't solve. They are there, period. Um, and we are all trying to get out of that, right, in our own way. Because it's not that we that we came together and said, let's write a manifesto about how to work. No, we were already working differently. So when we wrote the manifesto, we had in the room 13 different methodologies, frameworks, represented um, and uh, if you talk to for example James Granning he t does a lot of you know when it comes to quality of the code where my focus was on okay how can I deliver the business value how can I make sure that I really connect to what what the, what the organization needs much more um, so we had different angles and we we tried to find and the way we did this was um, uh, explaining to each other okay so we all work differently this is how I work and why and uh, what uh, I like the phrase from John Kern, uh, where he said, uh, you know, when we went into that room, when we walked into that room, we left our egos at the door. We listened to understand instead of listening to criticize. Uh, 
And that's what I miss a lot in the Agile world today. And it also means that we, we don't have to update the Agile Manifesto at all because we are still far from it, very far from it. Um, uh, the Agile world has become a battle over certificates. The Agile world has become a group of people that deny other people's best practices and learnings. It's not that you that you deny other people's thoughts. You deny what people have done for 20 or 25 years, right? And that's not what we meant when we wrote the Agile Manifesto. That's what not what we were like when we wrote the Manifesto. Um, so I think we have a long way to go still. Um, uh that manifesto was a sort of a declaration of independence. We all work differently. <laughs> this is this is it, right? And I can tell you when that declaration of independence. I think it was written by one guy only, uh, with a couple of people around him. But if you if you have that that a group of people writing that declaration of independence, now they bring in their own thoughts behind it and why they want to have something similar than the other one, but it's not exactly the same. So you find the commonalities, and I think that's where we are today. Um, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious about what you were saying. You were already working differently before writing down yeah. the Agile Manifesto. What? Yeah. What was the point that you were looking into, for instance, Waterfall and figured, this is not what works for me. I should do this differently. And how did you figure out what to do differently? Um, it, uh, it, it I started in November 1993 on a project in a governmental organization in the Netherlands. We had like 30 people on the team, 30 people full-time working. I think from the 30 people, easily 28 externals. And um, uh, in May, so seven months later, out of the blue, nobody ever saw that coming. One moment to the other, the project was killed. And it's literally like 10, 15 in the morning. You walk out of the out of the, the building. You're standing next to your car. <laughs> what am I going to do now? What is this? And I remember that I felt very uncomfortable with the fact that I was part of wasting public money. And I don't think you should waste public money ever. That doesn't mean that projects can't be stopped. But I, until today, I don't even know why. Um, there was no communication at all? No, it was like 10 o'clock we were called into a room, 10.15, I stood next to my car and out of the building. That sounds disrespectful. Yeah, and at that moment in time, I didn't even perceive it like that. But I thought, because it's obviously the way that people work there. This is this is the modest. This is how we do this. And then on the way, because I decided to go to the office. I worked for uh, Origin at the time. And I decided to go to the office. And I we had like, I don't know exactly, like 50 people working. But Origin was organized in what they called cells, smaller offices. And uh, we had six managers and I spoke to five of them and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't know what I want because I don't know what's out there. And one of them gave me, I'm mean, maybe like one or two weeks later, gave me a call and said, I got something for you. And that was uh, a rapid application development, the pilot with the Royal Navy. And it's it, it, it was as bad as it, it is today. You know, you have an organization that said, oh, we want to go agile. So they sent people to a two-day scrum training and now, now we know everything we need to know. And that, that person has been to the scrum training, needs to know and needs to guide us because this person is now the expert. And it was the same thing. We were dropped into a two-day training and then there you go. Good luck. Yeah. And uh, uh, two things happened. Thankfully, there was one of the guys uh, from uh, from another cell in the organization that offered help. Lucas Hoffman, he later on um, migrated to Norway. Um, and uh, there were a lot of things that we didn't know. We just have to figure out. 
Um, and, and there were things called, but the information on how to do it and who to have, they were like thin. So um, I, I started experimenting, right? And, and in that experimenting mode is the people around you, because I am a very fast and I do and I go, right? But the people around you that are not that fast in taking those kind of steps get completely confused by you, right? And I did confuse people of my own team as well. Um, the other side is, the, 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 and now we get to, okay, the problem that I had when the project was scaled was we waste money and we should deliver value. This is public money. And I was able to, de- to make sure with the team, not me, myself, but with the team, the way we work together to deliver value. I remember the, the, the pilot with the Navy, there was, a, there was a, 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 a petty officer who had made some sort of an Excel application or access, MS access application. And it's okay, we need to replace it on a more stable platform. So let's do this. And it only has to work for a year and a half because then we have something really good. This is a pilot. <laughs> and I was like three, four years later, I met those people. Yeah, it's still working, man, what you, what you guys made. Um, so that was the good part, real value. And we got into that value because we had the people from the business with us. And that's so important because if you want to generate value, delivering the software to the, to the market in operations doesn't generate value. It's only proper use that will generate the value. And then it needs to be, do, it needs to be doing what, what people need, the business people need. They need to have accepted. They need to know how it works. So that close collaboration, getting, okay, this is what you looked in terms of value. What kind of requirements do you need? How do they work? Prototyping, simulating, refining the feedback. That started to shine the light. Okay, this is how we get there. And then we had uh, uh, also the concept from the beginning. If you bring something in, a new requirement, you know, cha- your welcome changes, right? If you bring something in, something has to go out. I mean, you cannot, a bucket has 10 liters. When it's full, it's full. And if you bring something in, you have to take something out. If you don't organize that taking out, then something will drop out anyway. And that's most of the time quality, right? So I started doing my things differently in 1994, started doing those kind of projects commercially in early 95. Uh, In 1997, because I was most of the way I worked was based on rapid application development. Not everything, because rapid application development has gaps and you try to fill in those gaps, you know, in a in in, in, in the way it helps you, right? And and without losing all that time on stupid toll gates and sequential processes and you know all that written documentation. And um, then in 1997, I saw a poster from the DSDM Consortium. The DSDM Consortium was founded in 1995 and they had the nine principles. And literally, I thought when I saw that poster, who looked into my notes? That was my first feeling. <laughs> and that's very simple because rapid application development had gaps. You try to fill up the gaps you know, with just common sense, right? And not with old solutions, but innovating forward within that concept of, of you know, short-cycled, fast feedback delivery. How can I do this? And of course, the people, because DSDM at the time was very UK-based, um, those people are also, you know, people with common sense. <laughs> so they had sort of the same kind of learnings and the same kind of practices that helped them out. Um, and I got connected in the summer of 1997 with the DSDM consortium. I think it was June that I did a certification in, in Utrecht. That was the moment that the DSDM consortium also uh, started a chapter in the Benelux. I got involved in the DSDM consortium and I got onto an international task force 
I was very often working with Mary Hansen, who was running the back office of the DSDM consortium. And um, uh, she gave me a call one moment in time, you know, February 2001. Do you have time this weekend to go to Salt Lake to represent us? I said, yeah, sure. And, and, and that's there it. There are worse so, places? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I, so I did my, my, my change in, in 1994, and that's the only thing way people can change, I think, when you, when you make the decision to change yourself. Change cannot be forced upon you. Um, and uh, if, I think, if, for example, James Grenning, he started in 1998, if you, because that's, he met the work of Kent Beck uh, and Ward Cunningham, you know, extreme programming, and he was very interested. He got into TDD, right, test-driven development. So we all had our moments. I don't know for everybody, but we all had our moments. Uh, I was thinking a little bit in the middle. Some started earlier, some started later. I don't know. Um, and that's when we got together. Yeah. I think I, I really appreciate what you said. This is common sense, but I do feel that common sense is one of the most uncommon things at this point in time. What makes it so hard for people to think like this, to be to be comfortable with change? I mean, I think it's fundamental to most, to people in general to be reluctant to change. Uh, but you seem to be very open and, and responsive to that change. What makes it so hard to, in an organization, to be able to have that holistic yeah, approach? Yeah, there's a there's a very simple explanation for 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 it, and that also tells you how difficult it is to do this. Agile, doing agile is simple, right? You do your dailies, your heartbeats, your retros, your refinement. You do visual management. You have a plan board. That that all looks simple. But to be able to do that in the proper way, as we meant writing the manifesto with self-organizing teams and welcome change even late in development, that means that change advisory boards don't no longer exist. That means that documentation standards will change. That means that decision-making processes will change. That means that uh, the empowerment of people on the teams, your basic users, not managers, is completely different. That requires deep disruptive change in the organization. That's number one. And secondly, it's a way of working that people never done before. Because you very often you see in so-called agile organizations that people work sprints in a waterfall. They have feature teams, development teams, then UAT, test, and it's, it's a simple waterfall what they do. Where does it come from? Uh, people, uh, uh, you know, the old way of working is pre-described, right? It's written down. This is how it works. And we try to replace it by this. And it's not true because, you know, we have... Like, I don't know, at the moment, uh, uh, 14, 15, 16, 17 Agile frameworks, all with their own practices. And depending on your need, you cherry pick the practices that help you the most, right? And not taking one book and saying, okay, this is the truth. Now, the point is, if you if you paid a lot of money for that book, you will not let other things in because then you lose your fundament for making your money. Now, the moment that the framework becomes the business model, Agile is out of the door. Very simple. But there's, there's even a, a more um, a biological one. Um, you know that people don't like to leave the comfort zone. 95 yes. to 98% of the people stays in their comfort zone. We know this. But do you know why? And I was a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting on the couch watching um, the daily program called Op1. And uh, there was a, a professor in neurology. And he said, you know, here in the back of your head, just you know, let's say behind your ears, on both sides, you have a little thing called the amygdala, the, the almond kernel. And what the almond kernel does, the moment you get into a situation that you don't know or you are not used to, 
you start feeling uncomfortable subconsciously. It's not a choice. It's subconsciously happening. So the moment, it's, it's an old survival mechanism, right? The point is an agile transformation doesn't kill you. <laughs> but the response to it is the same. On top, Sander realized that you have people that worked hard, got into a position in the company, and now those idiots come in and they will tell you, oh, no, that position no longer exists because we have self-organizing teams. My One of my benefits in that whole story uh, uh, during writing the manifesto, but also before, in 1997, I joined a company in the Netherlands called Solvision, very young company, I founded in 1996. I was number 24 on the payroll. By the turn of the century, two and a half years later, after I joined, two, year, two years and nine months later, um, we had 700 people and it was all autonomous growth. It was not buying companies, it was autonomous growth. We worked with self-organizing teams. The concept behind it was uh, from Ricardo Semler, uh, Semco style. And we had in the beginning one and later on two and, and later on maybe three or four people in the back office. And the only thing they did was sending invoices to clients and paying salaries. Everything else was done in the teams, innovation, business development, uh, uh, sales, uh, contract management, delivery, HR, marketing, everything was hiring, firing, everything was done in those teams. Uh, and I found out there how important it is that uh, when you read the manifesto, right, that, you know, that you, you should create, you trust people to get the job done and, and, and create the environment for them so they can do it. That doesn't mean it's perfect, but um, it, 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 it allows people to develop and take the responsibility. And going back to Daniel Pink again, to take the responsibility, but it gives, it gives them a massive ownership. And that's that's what I brought into the manifesto. So when you see the things like maximizing the work not done and and trust people to get the job done, those kind of things, that, that's that's my experience. Those are for me experience changes late in yeah. I you know I know Scrum says that you don't change in a sprint. If there is a real good change to make a change in a sprint, I do that. You have proper agile practices for it to do so. Why should I deliver less value if I can deliver for the, in the same time with the same money more? Do so. Yeah, those yeah. dogmas annoy me, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the sprint goal itself doesn't change, but the scope does. The, the, the goal is a value. It's not a list of requirements. No, exactly. It's old school thinking. No, it is. Yes. That does imply that you want to continuously update also the Scrum Guide. Um, now, going back to the delivery of value, how often do you see that there is a good organizational discussion what we see as value? Okay, we're going to deliver value. What does that mean? I can tell you, Sander, that every project that I go in, and I'm not afraid to use the word project. Right? If I go into a project, and that's a transformation for me is a project because I go in with my team, and that can be for three months or six months or nine months or a year or a year and a half, but I go in with my team. After one moment in time, my people are done, and we make sure that the, that the organization is ready to take it on themselves, whether it's a commercial delivery, an other transformation, all the same for me. I always start asking my question, what happens to your organization if we don't do this? What goes wrong? And I had, one of my clients said to me, Ari, I am a software company and my code is so poor that I have so many incidents, I don't get to the new, to the new work. I don't get to new deliveries, to, 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 to new functionalities. My clients are walking away from me. My number of incidents need to go by 50, down by 50%. That's a value. Another client said to me, mine said, Ari, I am I'm a tech company. 
tech is in a pace of change that's insane. Innovation is my lifeline. Out of this agile transformation, I need 20% efficiency so that I can make time for innovation because innovation is what I need. And we brought down the lead time in the organization from 18 to 24 months to three months. We brought down the release cycle from three months to two weeks. And that was helpful. I had clients who said to me, Ari, my number of times that I overrun my SLA needs to go down by 80%. The clients are running away. So we need to find a solution. That's value. And then the people who are in that process where the SLA is overrun will be with the developers in the team, making sure that they get the requirements out of it. They decide on it. They refine them. They change them to make sure that they get the best possible value. Very simple. That does imply that there is, there are people in the organization that understand what problem that needs to be fixed. In the beginning of this recording, you already dove into a little bit of the certification craze and that yeah. agile is becoming, at this point, is a big buzzword. And people want to do agile, do agile, not be agile, for the hell of it, because it's a buzzword, because it's a hype. How often do you see happening that? Or do you see the argument popping up? We need to be agile or do this this framework because we need to deliver faster, because we need to deliver more. <laughs> the last two lines, I don't even need. We, we, we are going agile. We decided to implement safe. Okay. <laughs> There you mm -hmm. go. I mean, and this is the top management. The top management says something like this because they don't understand. They have no clue what it means to have an agile organization. And then in that line of thinking, they are supported by the big consultancy firms because they make a massive amount of money out of it, yes. you know, defining operating models and that kind of thing. And this is not what, absolutely not what we intended when we wrote the manifesto. Oh, I can imagine. And SAFE didn't pop up that long after you guys wrote the agile manifesto. 2012, yeah. right? I think, yeah, 20, 2011, something, somewhere around that. And I, and I don't mind the safe practices. Absolutely not. No, it's the interpretation. Yeah, and the moment that you make it into, uh, you only understand what Agile is when you have that, that, that so-and-so certificate. I had, I can, I can tell you this because it's written down uh, on one of the community uh, apps that we have, where a guy gets out of a training to renew his certification. And it was a two-day training. And he was bombarded with between 250 and 300 slides. And he asked the trainer, he said, where is my learning? How do I handle this amount of slides? And the trainer said, you know, we discovered that a two-day training sells the best. Yeah, sells the best. Yeah, it has nothing to do with learning of the participant. It has nothing to do with agilization of the company, any company. It has nothing to do with improvement of the participant. It's about selling the training. Yeah. And I wish I should have done the same. I would be unhappy, but another <laughs> there, would be, there would yeah. be some benefits, right? Yeah. But that, yeah, but it means staying close to yourself, and I think that's only a good thing. And I, I agree with you. There is nothing wrong with the safe principles and the, exactly. the intent exactly. behind the framework. What I do think is wrong is the way that that it's been put together on as the framework itself. In this part, in this part of the world, we read if we read a book or a menu or whatever, we start on the top left and we read. To the bottom right. That's the way that we that we read. Now, if you go to to the top left of the framework of Safe, it says the uh, the enterprise. So the enterprise always comes first. On the bottom, on the down low, there are the agile teams, and somewhere 
out of all that fluff, you just have to filter out where the, the, the customers and the stakeholders are. So that's that's my wrongful interpretation of the uh, of the safe well, framework. I, 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 one of the things that people will do because they have that little amygdala in their brain on both sides is when they see a new framework, a new model, a new change, they will try to see how they can do it from their current position. Yes. And if you have a framework that offers you that space, then it will be just an excuse. And that's not what we meant when we, when we wrote the Agile Manifesto. No. And I think that would be a discussion in itself because I think we can go down, go on this path for for quite a bit. Um, but you you already mentioned a couple of times that you do not you're there are differences between what you intended when you wrote the Agile Manifesto and the current state of things. What what do you feel is the current state and how we should move forward? Well, the current you know one of the things that I and I blame myself for it. I never did this kind of work exclusively in IT. I mean, if you make a new product, you have to market it because you can have the product at the market, but if it's not properly marketed, you know, you sell your value will, will be either late or not at all. So I always had that combination. If I had audit trails, so I have the, the software development teams and the non-IT for audit trails, for uh, things like uh, a marketing. At the time, I had technical implementation. We're all working on the same backlog. And still I get into debate, Ari, do you think that Agile for non-IT is possible? Man, it make me wet my pants if I, <laughs> if I hear this. I what the hell is this, right? So this is one of the big things. And, and more and more we talk about corporate agility. We start understanding it. But corporate agility means that as an organization, you are able to respond to change, right? And, and as an organization, you accept that prescriptive doesn't work when it comes to things like, you know, how how uh, a new product or a service should look like, what kind of requirements should be in there. Uh, but even yesterday I got the request and somebody saying, you know, it's not true what you say. You know, you need to, uh, I mean, you know, for a little development, all this can be, but you need to have your architecture 100% ready. <laughs> you define your architecture. That will take you half a year to a year. In the meanwhile, we'll yes. deliver and generate value if you don't like, if you don't mind, right? Um, so uh, I think that's that's where we are today. Um uh, very little organizations really get the, the value of agile working, and I think that's where there's a lot, lot to win. There's a lot if you are open to the learnings of other people. There's a lot you can win, and if you learn, and if you're bumping to problems, and if you, I mean, if you do something that you didn't do before, of course things go wrong, or are, at least are not perfect the first time. Uh, and what we tend to do, we look in our brain for a solution, but we don't have a solution because we've never done it. So what we do is we implement an old solution. I call it innovating backward. And you need to get get a thought, okay, so this is the these are the values, these are the principles of the Agile Manifesto. This is my problem. How can I solve it? And ask people and listen. Listen to it, right? And you have you have uh, frameworks and their um, practices that are focusing more on quality some are more focusing more on efficiency and some are focusing more on the value so you can grasp from the different frameworks and i think that's where we need to go and i think at this moment in time i meet a lot of clients at ari we try to and 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 it, it doesn't work help uh, i had one client where i made a proposal and they decided to work with another company this other company is more like a group of freelancers, not aligned uh, uh, group of coaches. They have 
over 100 coaches on site. And the biggest problem is that the coaches are not aligned, sending out different messages and the people in the organization get completely confused. Delivery almost to a standstill. And I think this is where we need to work. You know, the quality of agile coaches need to improve. Uh, much more uh, in, in, the, in the knowledge of multiple frameworks, so agnostic, be agnostic in your knowledge, your body of knowledge on the agile side. And the second part of your body of knowledge is about coaching, the skills to coach. Um, and then you have more things okay, because Agile is a paradigm shift. How do I do a paradigm shift? You, know, you need to understand what, what it takes to make that happen. Uh, otherwise, you just come in and you start saying things that might not help be helpful to the organization at all. And by the way, the other coach next to you will say different things, right? So you start pulling on a rope and the team is in the middle. doesn't work. We are in that, that position. We have a lot to gain, but the, the big thing is, of course, Agile has got traction all over the world. Pace of technology is going up, of innovation in technology is going up, will never slow down. You have to, there's no choice, right? You have to. Do you think then the, the for instance, uh, large conglomerate organizations will are, are doomed to fail basically because of such a large structure and alignment throughout a large organization is impossible? Um, I think you can break it up in in uh, uh, teams that generate as one a specific value. You can call them value teams or tribes. I don't give, I don't care at all. I would say I, I don't give a shit how you call it. Um, and that makes it already more more uh, uh, better to handle. Um, and uh, in terms of the alignment, uh, you know, there are things in, in, in the edge of practices that you can use. And I think when it comes to across teams, the alignment, it's very important that you understand that teams can you know, select their own agile practices that help them where they need to share agile practices when it comes to the connection in deliveries, you know, dependencies or whatever. That's where you need to go. And the rest, let them go, right? Will that work for big organizations? I was yesterday talking to uh, a prospect, 150,000 people in 70 countries. They don't have to do the same thing in 70 countries. Of course not. By the way, 70 countries, at least 70 cultures, uh, every culture is benefiting from its own the, the specific agile practices more than the other because it helps, you know, agile is, of course, a, a mindset change, a, a really a, a culture change. And to make a culture change, you need to overcome your own culture, cultural habits that are against it, right? And for every culture, those are different. And the first line in the agile manifesto is individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Yeah. I feel at this point in time, we're finally moving more towards looking at people as people rather than being resources. What's your take? Yeah. That word resources. What a, what, what a, uh, so I worked for a company in, in Rotterdam for a while and, and they, they lost it. Uh, we lost it, I should say because of the crisis and some other things that happened in the company. Uh, very sad. Uh, the company was named people make the difference. I mean, it's the best name ever. Even a cultural change is, you know, for me, culture is a group of people sharing habits. And that means that if if the people decide together to change their habits collectively in cohesion, you have a transformation, right? And a culture shift. But it is the difficult thing to do because this is what people are used to. This is their comfort zone. The little amygdala comes back in. Big organizations can do this. I am convinced any organization can do this. 
It takes time, effort, and persistence. One of my clients uh, pre-COVID said to me, Ari, the success in an agile transformation is don't compromise. Very good. Oh. That doesn't mean dogmatic, but always check if something is not working well. How can I fix it? Is there something available on the market within the agile values and principles that can help me out here? Or maybe it's something that I need to innovate myself. And then just be sharp that you don't innovate backward. Yeah. Do you think then, the, for instance, the human resources a, should be instantly involved in the beginning of a tran uh, transformation or that, that uh, mindset shift? Well, uh, in the way I do, uh, I take this in from the beginning because uh, you, know, you move from the traditional teams into the agile teams. And an agile professional has uh, a different profile than uh, a silo-based professional. And uh, uh, I was uh, I put on that about you know the T-shaped profile, and somebody came back to me. Oh, so you, this is how you create average people? So no, the point <laughs> in T-shape is you have your expertise, you have your depth, but in case somebody else needs an extra hand in your team to finish a task, you can jump in, right? To avoid individual dependencies because they cause a lot of delay. So if somebody gets stuck, you can help out. And the T-shapes are not average people. And it's very simple. Can I give you an example? Look at the football games of... Look at Lionel Messi or Ronaldo. They have a T-shape because they can, they can play really well in one specific position in the field. But they, and they will, they can and they will, you know, get back with the team if the team needs. Move extra forward if the team needs, you know, like, like Messi for example, or Wijnaldum, or uh, all those guys. They are the ultimate T-shape super professionals. And that's what you need to build. So it also means in terms of resources, Sander, that as an organization, you need to understand that those people have their own ambitions. And one of the differences that you are going through when it comes to, okay, how do I work with developing uh, my organization and helping my people to develop themselves, is that in the past you would have a predefined path where you would say, okay, you're now a technical designer if you want to become a functional designer, which is the next step in the waterfall. My case in the mid-90s, you need to go to, you need to be this amount of years, this position, you need to go this and this and this and this, this training, and then when it's time, we'll give you a promotion, right? That kind of thing. And I had one guy working with me actually on that last governmental project and he went into his annual evaluation and he worked for the same organization just in another cell. And he said, he came back the next day, he said, Jesus, Ari, I am a developer. I like to be a developer. They said I have to become a functional designer and I want to. And now they told me that I have a lack of ambition. <laughs> I said, like to be a developer, man. And what Agile does with the T-shape is you expect people to grow. You don't have to be able to do all the tasks in the definition of done, but you should be able to do multiple. I think it was Michael Beadle who said, or at least half, preferably more. Um, that's great. And then from that perspective, which what are the things that you can do? What what is the what is the the vertical in your silo, or what's the horizontal in your T shape? Um, uh, that's up to the individual to decide. So the individual will develop in line with his or her ambition, which is completely different than being squeezed into a predefined role. If you have people developing in, in line with their ambition, what it means is that those people will do the things they like. And that's how you get the best out of the, comp uh, out of the people as a company. Only helpful as an organization. Very simple. I can only wholeheartedly agree with that. Thank you for that. Now, the second line is, is working software over uh, comprehensive documentation. Yeah, 
Um, uh, this would be prone to change, right? It's it's not just software anymore. I mean, it's it's in in general. Um, uh, you're working solutions. Um, so the way I like to work, the moment that you define the backlog, you go into your delivery sprints. And I have every two, three days, I have half an hour, 45 minutes maybe with the people from development and business and maybe other stakeholders like the legal department or whatever. I have them together. And development people show what they have made and they get instant that, that kind of feedback. And that gives you... Um, uh, uh, the perfect way to converge to the best possible value to deliver in a sprint. Now, when it comes to documents, the, the problem with, especially with the old school documents, the waterfall documents is they are in a language that the client doesn't even understand. The business people don't understand. So you cannot liaise to, is this what you need? If a technical design, you cannot liaise, is this what you need? The misunderstandings are there all the time. Um, so can I find a way to, to, to have a common language? And the prototype is the common language because if I show what I've made, People from architecture can look at it. People from marketing can look at it. People from the business who have to use it can look at it. Everybody can look at it in their own way and give the feedback to developers so they can adapt so that you can converge to acceptance at the end of your sprint. One of the biggest mistakes is we, we, do, we often use the demo as an acceptance meeting. Sander, what is the big problem with an acceptance meeting? There are multiple. Um... But you know the biggest one? People don't accept. That's no, the they never do. And then, then you have the point, you're at the end of your sprint, you don't have an acceptance. You know what it means? You have a delay. Agile is about avoiding delay. So if you can, from the sprint forward, every two, three days, have this little feedback loop, fast feedback, pays off. Then you have four, five times feedback on those you know, little requirements and you converge towards acceptance. I always said at the end, of, I, I didn't call them sprints at the time. I, uh, I always call them time boxes. I said, if I don't have acceptance by the end of the time, because I will eat my shoes, you know, Dutch expression. Never happened. I never ate my shoes. Too bad. <laughs> oh, you don't know my shoes, man. <laughs> I was teaching a course a couple of weeks ago, and there still seems to be this stigma, this very deep-rooted stigma with people that when we're doing Agile, any framework, when we're into Agile, we don't need any documentation anymore. Yeah, the biggest bullshit in the world, of course. Yes. Where did uh, this come from? Um, this is, you know, people like it the easy way. We don't need that comprehensive MS Word documentation anymore. But for example, let's let's take a progress report, right? In the past, and I've been in situations working with people, they would spend every month three or four days on writing a progress report when they were on a big project. Writing a progress report. And the moment that you finished it, it's outdated. Right? Yes. And you can lie and you can cheat and you can manipulate in it. It's probably a watermelon deck and document anyway. And the moment that you have your daily, you update your plan board, you update your sprint backlog, you know, the plan board, you update your burn down. At the end of your sprint, you check the post-its of the stories that have been delivered. You put them back on the product backlog where all the epic and stories that are from the original product backlog. The moment if you keep on doing that like this, you will always see on the product backlog what has been done, what is still need to, needs to be done. And you can see on the uh, burn down and on the sprint backlog where we are and if we have any impediments. I don't have to spend one second on writing a progress report. This is almost real-time information that comes out of the Agile rituals. That doesn't mean that I don't have documentation. 
If I have, of course I need architecture documentations. I work with teams in Agile Factory. They had the, the architecture, not in a Word document, but it was like six or seven or eight flip charts big on the wall. And it was owned by the team. And if the team had saw, okay, you know, now we have something that doesn't fit into the architecture. They would jointly go to the wall, look at it and find the solution together and, you know, proceed the work after. And instantly everybody would be updated. Nobody has to read any bloody Word document anymore. Is that was this what you guys meant as well with that cu customer collaboration, where you just continuously want people to be involved and really be engaged rather than being on, on the other side? Yeah, so from, uh, the, the architecture is more that's without, without the business people, of course, right? Because they're not interested in architecture. Uh, but the concept of having documentation like this uh, and also that fast feedback, you know, the, the point is if, if you, what a lot of people do is they have a refinement and then they have a demo at the end of the sprint. If people see things for the first time, you will have misunderstandings. You will have just errors, right? And then you get the feedback and you're late and it takes such a little effort. It's just that the way of working is so different that people don't want to do it. And then you get back to that little thing in your brain again, the amygdala. Is that also where you think the idea comes from that we have so many meetings in this agile thing, Ari? If you don't understand why you do a daily or why you do uh, a retro or a heartbeat or a big room planning or why you do visual management, most likely you do it in the wrong way. And then it starts losing its value. I always say the success in Agile comes with the quality quality, and the discipline that you apply during the Agile rituals. But if you don't understand, and this is the level below doing, if you don't understand why I do a daily, we have people say, oh, you know, we do the daily... Uh, once a week because it takes so much time. Then you exactly don't understand one fuck about why you do a daily. It's very simple. Yeah. And that's where we need to work on. And I think this is where a lot of a lot of coaches go wrong in trainings because they tell you this is how the daily... A daily should take 15 minutes. Bollocks. If I have six people, it takes maybe six, seven or eight minutes. If I have nine people, it might take 10 or maybe 15 minutes. You know, it's it's you have to understand why you do the things. The daily is to shorten the time window of the student syndrome. Yeah. Ah, right. And what is the student syndrome? Is nothing else that if you ask people, man, man, you're doing a job. How are you doing? Are you doing well? They always say until the latest moment, oh, I'm doing well. And then all hell breaks loose because they were not already. Yeah. And the daily forces you to show if you have an impediment on a 24-hour basis, on an eight-hour working basis, working day basis. And that, that makes you that instantly the team can respond, can help, you to overcome the impediment, which means that you avoid the delay. Yeah. Very simple. All these events are indeed aligned or created for the last line in the Agile Manifesto for the ability to respond to the change rather than following a plan. That yeah. daily is still it seems to be that more of a stand-up still still to be referred to a stand-up rather than a daily thing, a daily discussion. And I really don't care. I tell people tell people in my courses, I do not care whether you do it standing up, laying down or hanging from the ceiling like Tom Cruise, even though I would love a picture if people would. Uh, but indeed, it seems to be that the, the, the grasping of the, the whole concept behind these events is not really getting getting down and, and ingrained in people's people's system. This is the problem. I was, I was one moment at a time, a marketing team, and they were really struggling to deliver. So I said, okay, are you working agile? I, yeah, yeah, we are. We are. Okay, so yeah, we have a daily, every day. I said, well, that's good. That's a start. Three people on the marketing team, they have every day a daily of 30 minutes. That's wasting Jesus. time. 
Yeah. And if, if someone is leading that team in the role of Scrum Master, but doesn't understand what it's all about, this happens. And then the outside people will say, oh, you know, Agile doesn't work. Yes, it yeah. does. It's not a debate anymore. We know it works. But you have to do things in a specific way. You can lose weight, but you have to stop eating candy. That's a very to- controversial thing to say, Ari. Stop eating candy. Especially well, this time of year. I can understand that one from... And, and I, I am okay if you, if you have a cheat day, but do that in the weekend. Not that works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think we, on an overall overall perspective, what do you think we should do now to make the Agile Manifesto or the Agile Mindset stick more than we're, we're currently doing? I think uh, we have to understand we're on the way. You know, the Agile world is a very young world. Uh, things are happening. The need is bigger than ever. So whether we call it agile or not, this is what organizations have to be able to do. You know, in the next five years, it's do or die. Um, uh, what what it takes to get there, what will help organizations, is people would for once be open for learning. Just sit down. You know what I like when I and I know at the moment we're uh, we're not on site. So my my calendar just get you know this is where you do your talk and then half an hour I can have another talk later right so but normally when I'm on site on a conference after I did my talk because before my talk I'm always focusing but after my talk I like to meet people to learn and I like to visit people who do you know the small room like for 25 or 30 people those kind of sessions and and pre covid if I was at those kind of conferences and I do a lot I would try to attend the more technical um, uh, sessions because I lost sort of connection with the technical world because I'm focusing on the edge of transformations and my own job and the things that I do. But I like to understand technology. I like technology and I like to understand technology. So I visit those. Keep up the learning. Don't think you're there. Uh, that's hard to understand or to really have the confidence and being so open and exposed to the idea that we're not there. Also, understanding the idea that agility doesn't have an end state. Yeah, it doesn't have an end state. So it's, 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 it's more liquid, right? You get, you get into that, that continuous process of, of learning. And um, I, that, that openness to learn doesn't make you vulnerable. I mean, even if you know it's impossible, but let's say at this moment in time, you know everything. There will be an innovation tomorrow and you need to learn again. This is how we get there. Standing still is getting behind. Do you feel that we should push boundaries more? For instance, now that a couple of extreme examples are, for instance, what, what SpaceX is doing or Facebook now with Meta, um, whether you disagree with them or you like them, I don't care. But it's really pushing those those boundaries ultimately to move forward and being open to, to any change or different perspectives and, and learning. Do you think we should push boundaries more than we do? Yeah, I think you have to understand the boundary is only something that the human brain sets, nothing else. I like that. Yeah. As a last question, Ari, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about you? Where can people interact with you? Yeah, so my website, arivenbenekum.com. It's not always updated, but we are working on it regularly. Um, I, sometimes I just don't have the time, right? <laughs> I can imagine. Um, uh, where I am do a lot of activity is uh, on LinkedIn, of course, and I invite people to connect to me. I have a habit, you know, if you send me a message, within a day you have an answer, you know, on LinkedIn, right? So uh, if people want to, they they can feel free to do so. Another one that I really like is um, agnosticagile.org. 
uh, it's a it's a, a publication that basically says, hey, you know, look into the whole wide agile world. Don't focus on one framework only. Don't be dogmatic. Um, and we have an app, Mighty Networks, uh, where uh, we have built into community. I think we're close to 1,000 members at the moment. It's really new. We started on, on Mighty Networks because we had different agnostic agile meetups across the globe. And I think like 15,000 people, maybe 20,000, I don't know. And we try to bring them those people together in Mighty Nets as an app for knowledge sharing where we organize events, where you can share your thoughts, you can ask for help. Uh, and it's very easy. It's on your phone, right? So you take it with you all the time. Mighty Networks, you can find me there. Yeah, and on Clubhouse, I try to be there as well. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I, I, I don't have the time. All that. But Mighty Networks, I can just quickly come in, do something, check, respond to people and go out where Clubhouse means that I have to stay in and have to listen. And sometimes I just don't have the gaps in my calendar to do no. so. But, but Mighty Networks and LinkedIn and Twitter, of course, as well, and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but <laughs> there, People have options. Yeah, yeah. But I would say, especially on where I communicate about Agile and you know thoughts and, and, and inform people about things that are happening in my Agile life, is LinkedIn is maybe the best place. And I can testify that you respond really quick because I think you responded to my uh, my request in 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, I'm on my phone because I do even most of my email, et cetera, I do on my phone. And when a message comes in, I very, because you see it roll over, over your screen. And I think, can I answer that one in 10 seconds? Now, your, your question was, Harry, can we do a podcast? Said, oh, yeah, I can do this. So that was my first answer. And the second answer was, okay, this is the time when we can do it. And you send an invite. That's how it works, eh? Yeah. I was perfect. So and I, I, I also like to say, Sander, that if people ask me a question about Agile, hey, Ari, how do I do this? Uh, and the answer is too much to type. I will suggest a, a small video conference. And then five minutes of video conference, it can help people so so much, right? That's pretty awesome. Because indeed, what you were saying in the beginning, that people, that there is a lot of ego at this point. So this, yeah, this is kind of a, a fresh breath in that. Ari... Yeah. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate you making the time, especially looking into your busy calendar. Thank you very much. And thank you for your passion and enthusiasm. My pleasure, Sander. My pleasure. Thank you again, Ari, for joining us today, as well as you guys for listening to this episode of the Mastering Agility podcast. Again, go to the website masteringagility.org, subscribe to that newsletter, as well as leave us a review on Podchaser and let us know what you think. Now, the year is almost coming to a closing, but we still have some really cool episodes for you guys. Next week, we're going to be talking about scaling with a Nexus framework together with Patricia Kong, friend of the show, and Yessa Howing. Hope you guys join us again next week.